Well, it is difficult to determine the most printed books of all time, but everyone agrees the number one book with an estimated five to six billion printed is the Bible. If included on the New York Times monthly bestseller list, it would always be number one. Now, I suppose the reasons that they do not include it uh, are, first, it would be redundant, kind of boring, and second, they don't know whether to include it on the fiction or nonfiction list, but we know, don't we? Most everyone also agrees uh, that the top 10 also uh, includes John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Most of you have likely read it or have at least heard of it. You may or may not know that he wrote it while he was in jail. You see, John Bunyan was a nonconformist preacher in the 1600s. Some say he was a Baptist, others say he was a Puritan. Regardless, he did not belong to the Church of England, and his little church in Bedford, England, did not use the common book of prayer. This was against the law. It's called unlawful assembly, and after refusing to cease preaching, he ended up spending 12 years in the Bedford jail. You should know that he was married, had four children, the oldest of whom was blind. Think of that, being separated from your family for refusing to cease preaching the gospel. Incidentally, his family made it because the church family took care of them. Now, during his time in jail, he wrote two very important works, The Pilgrim's Progress, and his own spiritual autobiography entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. I always wanted to, to read Grace Abounding. I've had it in my library for some time, but didn't get to it until the last couple of weeks. And, and oh my, the first three quarters of the book are quite depressing. I told my wife, this guy was either clinically depressed or... Acutely aware of his own sin. See, after marrying his wife, a Christian, Bunyan struggled with his own sin, his flagging faith, and, and forgiveness offered through Christ. He struggled for years. His greatest enemy was his own heart, believing that God would actually forgive such a man as himself. Oh, how he struggled. He would latch on to some passage of Scripture for a while. I say a while, it would maybe be for a few days before convincing himself that he was beyond the reach of God's grace. Finally, you reach this paragraph in the book right near the end, three quarters of the way in, which reads, now I sunk and fell in my spirit again and was giving up all for lost. But as I was walking up and down my house, as a man in a most woeful state, the Word of God took hold of my heart. You being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's right out of Romans 3. And listening to this heavenly sentence, it was as if I heard spoken to me, somebody, you need to listen. It was as if he heard God's voice saying, Sinner, you think that because of your sins and infirmities, I cannot save your soul. But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, and not on you, and shall deal with you according to my pleasure with him. Hallelujah. 
one of the most meaningful sentences ever written outside the Bible. And so I want you to listen very carefully this morning. Some of you think you are beyond the reach of God's grace. You think yourself too evil, indeed, perhaps the chief of sinners. You you think that you have committed too great a sin. You have somehow committed the unpardonable sin. Cannot tell you how many people have asked me about that. And you think, therefore, you cannot be saved. You see, what Bunyan struggled with was having this thought once in his life. Christ, be gone, if you will. And he was convinced that Christ left. Maybe you have wondered the same thing. Oh, I want to believe, uh, but I haven't believed rightly. I haven't believed well. (laughs) I'm too great a sinner. I'm too inconsistent. I've blasphemed in both word and deed. I am forever lost. I want to say to you this morning that God does not look at you for your salvation. He looks at his son, Jesus Christ, who sits at his own right hand, making intercession by his finished work for sinners such as you. If you don't hear anything else, hear this sentence right now. Believe the gospel and you will most assuredly, definitely, and irrevocably be saved. We are at the final verses of the central doctrinal portion of the book of Hebrews. Beginning in chapter 7, the author has been building a solid case of the superiority of Jesus Christ. That is, that Jesus and the new covenant he brought is better than the old covenant. You see, the old covenant consisted of the law of Moses, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, meaning the blood of animals and the day of atonement, and, and the tabernacle with its furniture. The new, to- the new covenant consisted of the gospel of Jesus, the Melchizedekian priesthood, the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Christ, the cross of Calvary, and the heavenly tabernacle. You see, everything about the new covenant was better, bringing final and eternal, listen, final and eternal forgiveness and hope to his followers. We've seen over and over the sacrifices of the old covenant. The blood of bulls and goats could never perfect the worshiper. They could never take away sins forever. And, and therefore, a new covenant was needed. And Jesus brought it by the sacrifice of himself. See, the final verse that we looked at last week read, by this will, that is, the will and plan of God found in the Old Testament and and brought in the new, by this will we have been sanctified or saved through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Bringing us to our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, the the final section of this doctrinal portion, verses 11 to 18 read, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time. And some of you are thinking, yep, time after time. The same sacrifice which can never take away sins, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. 
And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, after, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and, I, and on their mind I will write them. He then, the Holy Spirit then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The the author here summarizes several key points in the letter to this point. He quotes two Old Testament passages that he's actually already quoted and spent some time in, weaving them into a great summation of this great doctrinal section. So we'll outline the passage according to those two Old Testament quotes as the author finally, (laughs) once again, offers the superiority of Christ and the new covenant to the old covenant. So so the outline will look like this, Psalm 110, the finished, don't miss that word, the finished work of Christ, and then Jeremiah 31, the new covenant of Christ. Let's look at those first four verses to be reminded of the finished work of Christ. Now I say finished because this seems to be the author's main point here. I explained to you that he he focuses on a different facet uh, uh, of these verses over and over again. This seems to be the main point. It is finished. I love that truth. Christianity, you see, is not spelled, I've told you this before, it is not spelled D-O, do. That is, there are not things that you do in order to be saved. No, Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. That is, Christ has already done it all, already. It is finished, he said from the cross. Ours, you see, is simply to trust Christ, to believe in his finished work. Look at verse 11. Every priest, and and by that he's referring to the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time. You're supposed to be going, I know, I get it. He says it over and over again, signifying the over and over again sacrifice of the Old Covenant over and over, ministering time after time, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He brings the ultimate futility of the old system together in this one verse. Notice first, every priest reminding us that there were in fact many priests. In Israel, we've seen that they came from the house of Israel, I mean uh, of Levi. And we saw that there were many high priests, they were of the family of Aaron. And so for centuries, they served at the tabernacle, later the temple, on and on, through high priest after high priest. Their work was never finished. When they died, not a problem. Where they left off, the next one would take over again and again. Notice they would minister daily. This is referring, obviously, to more than the Day of Atonement, although it includes that. It refers to the daily sin offerings, the burnt offering, which included sacrifice for sin over and over. Time after time, the same sacrifices offered the same way. There were many. You see, all sacrifices for sin included blood and the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and calves and on and on. Who knows, who knows how much blood actually flowed? Notice they would stand daily. This is important. Again, part of the author's main point. 
You see, back in chapter 9, he had given us a description of the tabernacle and all its furnishings, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the, 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 the lampstand, the veil, and of course, the very important Ark of the Covenant. Did, did you notice one thing missing? There were no seats because the priests never sat down. Oh, they refreshed the, the bread weekly. They trimmed the lamps and daily and kept the lamps, oil lamps burning. They refreshed the incense. Once a year, the high priest would enter into the veil, uh, behind the veil into the most holy place, the holy of holies, to offer the blood of the sacrifices on the mercy seat. Oh, there's a seat, the place where God resided, but there were no seats. There was no, there was no rest to be found. Again, there was no sitting, no resting, because their work was never finished. We remember when the high priest went behind the veil into the Holy of Holies with the, the blood sacrifice. He did his work quickly. Why? Why? Well, you would too. He was in the very awesome, fearful presence of God. In fact, he had bells around the bottom of his robe uh, and a rope tied around his waist. Why? Because if he quit moving, doing the work of the bells stopped ringing, they knew he was likely dead, struck down by God, his work unacceptable. They would drag his dead corpse out. Again, there was no sitting, there was no resting. Those bells better keep ringing. They held their breaths, waiting for the high priest to reemerge, and then they were, they were good for a while. Even though it was never finished, the sacrifices they offered, even though they kept offering, the author reminds us those sacrifices could never take away sins. You see, when they, when they were finished for that day, for, for the year, on the day, there would always be the next day and the day after that. There'd always be the next year and the year after that. And those sacrifices never dealt with sin once for all. Enter the great high priest. Verse 12. Notice the very strong contrast. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice. What sacrifice was that? Verse 10 told us the offering of his own body. He sacrificed himself, having offered one sacrifice, not many, for the sins for all time, meaning his offering was eternally effective. It dealt with sins once for all, for all his people, for all time, past, present, and future. Having done so, verse 12 says, quoting Psalm 110, he sat down. They're standing, he sat down at the right hand of God. As you noted before, the right hand is a place of special honor and authority signifying his deity. He sat down. His work was finished. It was complete. He need no longer stand to sacrifice. He need no longer listen. He need no longer hang from a cross. He sat down signifying the completion and the eternal effectiveness of his work never to be repeated because it was not necessary. It's done. Verse 13 says, he sat down, waiting for the, from that time onward, again quoting Psalm 110, until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. To kneel uh, at someone's feet, uh, further to be a footstool is a symbol of complete defeat of the enemy and complete mastery for the victor. 
I guess the question could be asked at this time, who are his enemies? Obviously, they include the forces of evil. Further, 1 Corinthians 15 says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Can anybody say hallelujah? We, we sing it. Death itself has been struck a death blow. But probably also included in the list of enemies. As difficult as it is to say this, are those who do not repent and believe the gospel. Those who stay in active rebellion against God and his right to rule. Enemies of God. But Paul tells us there's a day coming when all creation, those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, probably referring to Hades, the place of the dead, all will bow to the sovereign God of the universe and his right to rule. Everyone will ultimately confess that Jesus is Lord, even those who refuse to bow the knee now and remain his enemies. Those who refuse to bow will one day bow. Look at the contrast the author draws in these verses. In the old covenant, every priest, meaning many priests, stand daily, offering many sacrifices, those sacrifices which could never take away sin. Conversely, under the new covenant, Jesus was one priest who offered one sacrifice and sat down taking care of all sin for all time. Absolutely amazing, the contrast. His enemies will most assuredly be made his footstool. 4, verse 14 by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Better, if you have the ESV translated, those who are being sanct uh, sanctified. This is an incredibly important verse. Perhaps the most famous verse in all of the book of Hebrews. Good one to memorize, by the way. The verb tenses are very important, and they tell us a story. For by one offering, the offering of himself, he has perfected. Stop right there. This is a favorite word for this author. This, this is the point. The idea of perfection is being made perfect or fit for heaven. Being able to stand in the presence of God, of drawing near to God. Now to this point, the author has largely used this word per perfect or perfection in two ways. First, he uses it to say that Jesus in his humanity was perfected, that is made fit through his suffering and, and his obedience to be the perfect high priest. We saw when we looked at those verses that it was not that Jesus was in any way imperfect, but through his obedience in suffering, he was made the perfect high priest, the perfect God-man, if you will, to represent us in his humanity. Second way the author has used it to this point is to suggest that the law, the old covenant, made nothing perfect. That's so important. Look at him, chapter 7, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. That seems fairly clear. Chapter 9, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Chapter 10, the beginning of this chapter, for the law, since there's, already a, since there's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, ever, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those perfect who draw near. Over and over, the author has made this point. But isn't the purpose of, the, of religion to do just that? To make us perfect, fit, cleansed for heaven, so that we can draw near to God? 
But the old covenant could not do that. And so a new covenant was needed. And by one offering, he, that is Jesus, has perfected us for all time. Hallelujah. The word perfected is in the perfect tense. It speaks of a past action with ongoing effect. This is glorious. He has perfected us in the past for all time, that is, with ongoing effect, forever. Who? Those who are being sanctified, that is, those who are being made holy. So get that. This is a great verse. Jesus, by his one offering, has perfected, made fit to draw near to God forever, for all time, those who are currently being sanctified. You see, you need to understand something. We are not fully sanctified yet. Well, actually we are. Because, God, because Bunyan got it right. God does not look at us. He looks at his son and he sees perfection. Such that we are seated right now with Christ in heavenly places. Such that we are right now positionally perfect is the way that it is said. We, but we are being made practically. That is in practice. We are being made holy so that our practice matches our current position. Are you with me? So what does that mean? It means there, that there is a sense in which you have been saved, past tense. In which you are being saved, present tense. And you will be saved future. We could say it this way. You have been justified. That is sins removed and declared righteous, perfected. You are being sanctified. You are being made more holy day by day. And, and you will be glorified in the future perfectly. So that in the future, your practice meets your position. By the way, let me just point out to you. You'll not reach it in this life unless Jesus comes back. You'll reach practical perfection when he comes back or you die and go to be with him but you're on the way that's the good news you're on the way you are right now positionally perfect so are you beyond the reach of God's grace no his grace justified you in the past and is sanctifying you now you say but 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 I'm not very perfect of course you aren't you won't be until you are glorified. But for now, listen, take joy in the ongoing process of sanctification, the being made holy. By his Holy Spirit, he is at work in you, making you more like his son. Quickly then, point two, Jeremiah 31. The new covenant of Christ, verses 15 to 18. Verse 15 and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, and he quotes an Old Testament passage. Then at the end of verse 16, the Holy Spirit then says, don't miss that the author here clearly is saying that the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity who inspired God's written word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 make that very, very clear. No prophet ever spoke by his own will, but as he was moved by the Holy Spirit of God. What did the Holy Spirit say? Verse 16, this is the new covenant that I will make with them. Right out of Jeremiah 31. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. We've talked about this already. Before the law of God was, was, was written 
on external tablets of stone by which people had no ability to obey. But now he has also promised his Holy Spirit within them, right next to the law of Christ, written on their hearts internally, by whom the indwelling presence of the Spirit we will obey. Not perfectly, but that will be the overall trajectory of our lives. They would have, we will have new hearts, the indwelling presence of the Spirit, and the law of God written within. Everything about it is new, you see. And then he says, verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds is a consequence. I will remember no more. I find that interesting. Under the new covenant brought by Jesus through his sacrificial death, God will no longer remember the sins of his people, which means... I would suggest this was a problem, perhaps the problem of the Old Covenant. Because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. We've seen that, right? Meaning they, they would always, those sins would always have been held to their account. But through the one sacrifice of the Son of God, our sins will no longer be remembered. That is, they will no longer be held to our account. The point, here's the point, get it this morning, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Because through the sacrifice of Jesus, your sins are remembered no more. Therefore, verse 18, and this is the conclusion of the matter, where there is forgiveness of these things, namely, these things, namely, there is forgiveness of sins and lawless deeds. There is no longer any need for offering for sin. Don't miss what he's saying here. And not only does he mean that Jesus need only die once because his work is eternally effective, but he also means you don't have to keep offering sacrifices. Okay, so those goats you're raising in the backyard, you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to offer any little lammies. You don't have to offer any calves or bulls or goats. You don't have to do that anymore. That also means even penance for sins once forgiven. Yes, ask for forgiveness for new sins, to restore your fellowship with people that you have sinned against. Ask forgiveness to restore your fellowship with God because the relationship, He is your God, you as His child, is always intact. Because those sins have been forever forgiven. I want to make sure you understand what I am saying. I ask people, when Jesus died, which sins did he die for? They will say, all of them. So when you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, which sins did he forgive? They pause. Well, I suppose all of them. Right. Then why do we confess? Simply to restore the fellowship that has been broken in sin, but never the relationship. He is always your God, and you are always his son or his daughter. You see, if tomorrow's sins are not forgiven unless you do penance or confess, when you think about this, then if you die on the way home, having lost your temper with the children in the back seat or other drivers. You get washed away in a flash flood. Don't do that because then I'll feel responsible. If that sin is not for, forgiven because you haven't confessed it, you're in trouble. You see, the Catholic Church used to teach, I don't know if they still do, I think they do, but they used to teach that suicide is the unforgivable sin. Self-murder. 
and you have no opportunity to confess. I'm not giving you permission to commit suicide, but they got it wrong. Truth is, this is how some of you live. Are all of my sins forgiven? Yes. Have I sinned in such a way that I am no longer forgiven? No. Does this not lead to living however you want? You know, just send it up? No. Because of our love for our Father, because of His great love for us first, because of His law written in our hearts in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we live joy-filled lives of obedience. We want to. Because we can. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are slaves of righteousness. I close. John Bunyan, for years, saw himself beyond the reach of God's grace. For years, though he prayed and studied the Bible, he saw his fate as worse than dogs, he said. He thought, at least when they die, that's it for them, but not for me. There is life after death, and in the life to come, there's no way God could forgive me. I've gone too far. I've been too evil. Then, as we've seen near the end of his autobiography, he found Christ. Better Christ found him. Sinner, I do not look at you. I look to my right to see my son. Some of you need to speak that truth to yourself. God does not look at you for your salvation. He looks at Jesus. I've said this before a thousand times, and I'll say it again. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of the one believed. So, the last words of his spiritual autobiography after yet, after this event, after yet another period of doubt. Have you ever had those? Periods of doubt? The last words... In his spiritual autobiography, read, Christ was, as precious, was a precious Christ to my soul that night. I could scarce lie in my bed for joy and peace and triumph through Christ. Hebrews 12, ha! Hebrews 12 was a blessed scripture to me for many days together after this. The, the words are these. You are come to Mount Zion and into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speak better things than that of Abel." Through this blessed sentence, the Lord led me, forever, uh, led me over and over, first to this word and then to that, and showed me wonderful glory in every one of them. These words have oft since that time been great refreshment to my soul. Blessed be God for having mercy on me. Hallelujah.